Good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see everyone again. Um, this afternoon, the as Jinha mentioned already, the theme is uh, to the least of these, and in basically embedded in this uh, in in Matthew chapter twenty-five is this idea of social justice. And uh, as I was kind of preparing for this message, I was going online and reading different articles and reading different papers on social justice. And the more I read, the more complicated I realized this section really was. And I kind of regretted picking the topic. And I thought, should I just change the topic last minute? And, you know, sometimes people come to the front and they say, you know, God has impressed something on my heart that I should just share with you. I was like, should I pull that number off? And I was like, ah, we'll just take a stab at it. So um, basically... Um, the concept of social justice has uh, changed quite dramatically over time, Rather, uh, whether it was from uh, the times of Plato to Aristotle to um, the Renaissance to today. Uh, this idea of social justice has actually changed quite a bit. And um, basically, this, I, this topic can be quite controversial. And so what I've done is I've just made a slide with the basic idea of social justice, and I'll just kind of walk through it with you, and then I want to share the biblical, one biblical perspective of, of social justice as the topic is quite broad. I'm just going to pick one aspect of it. So if you can see the slide here, all right, here's a description of, um, of social justice. So a brief description of social justice is promoting greater equality for all, Eliminating all prejudices that diminish people by virtue of their group membership. Supporting people in more fully realizing themselves as persons or in helping them to flourish as human beings. And enhancing the ability of people to lead, learn, and participate in creating a humane, caring, nurturing environment or nurturing community. Now, social justice is probably much more than this, but this is just kind of like a distilled, broad uh, definition or description of this idea. Now, on one hand, you've got people who are promoting equality, promoting the um, elimination of prejudice and uh, promoting uh, community and unity. And on the other hand, you've got people that look at this idea of social justice, and there's kind of a critique of or a criticism of this idea. And here's what the other side is saying. And this is a gentleman by the name of Ben O'Neill, who is a uh, part of the University of uh, New South Wales, and this is what he says. The notion of rights is a mere term of entitlement, indicative of a claim for any possible desirable good, no matter how important or trivial, abstract or tangible, recent or ancient, it is merely an assertion of desire and a declaration of intention to use the language of rights to acquire said desire. In fact, since the program of social justice inevitably involves claims for government provision of goods paid for through the efforts of others, the term actually refers to an intention to use force to acquire one's desires, not to earn desirable goods by rational thought and action, production and voluntary exchange, but to go in there and forcibly take goods from those who can supply them. So in other words, um, if for the sake of being fair... You take resources from those that have and give to those who do not have. It may be good for those who do not have, but it's not fair to those that have. Try, I'll, I'll go through that one more time. So, if for the sake of being fair, you take resources from those that have and give to those who do not have, it may be good for those who do not have, but it's not fair to those that have. 
And so in it of itself, in the name of justice, you are practicing injustice. And so one critique to this idea of equality and elimination of prejudice is saying, well, justice for whom? Now, what I want to tackle just briefly is, does the Bible actually promote this idea of equality? And as I think through different scenarios in the Bible, uh, I come to the conclusion that yes, sometimes the Bible promotes equality. And on the other hand, no, sometimes the Bible does not promote equality. But what I want to do is, um, if you in your Bibles can turn to Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 8, God uses the word justice in a particular context. And I kind of want to go over that. And we're going to be spending most of our time this afternoon in Isaiah chapter 61. So if you have your Bibles or your phones or anything else, Isaiah chapter 61, and we're going to look at verse 8. And here it starts out by saying, For I, the Lord, love justice. And I don't know if that's what it says in your version, but in my version it says, For I, the Lord, love justice. And so this is kind of the central major theme or line of this chapter. And I'm going to go through the second half of the chapter first, and then I'll go back and we'll cover the first half. So first of all, I'm just introducing the chapter by saying that God loves justice. Justice, And here's the result of uh, that love for justice. And he kind of breaks down what that means. I hate robbery for burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. So here, God connects this idea of justice with this everlasting covenant. Now, before I go into what that means, there's a definition or a dictionary definition of justice. And here's how it goes. Uh, justice is fairness, uh, fair play, fair-mindedness, uh, equity, equitableness, even-handedness. And this is the idea of justice, basically. And when God uses this word justice, it's in the context of this covenant. And a covenant is a solemn promise to engage in or refrain from a specified, excuse me, a specified action. And and he kind of explains what he means by this everlasting covenant. So if you go down to verse 10, continues on, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And so here this idea of justice is connected to this long-term covenant or a relational commitment. Um, and we kind of would look at that as a marriage. And basically, um, the language depicts this uh, wedding that's about to take place. And in ancient uh, tradition, there was kind of a week of festivities that would lead up to the consummation of the wedding. And so what would happen is the groom and the groomsmen would stay in one area and the brides and the bridesmaids would stay in another area. And for a week, they would feast and celebrate and party. Can you, how many of you guys had a, a bucks night or a hen's night? All right. Now, usually in Australia, the, the buck gets owned for about the whole day, right? <laughs> and uh, the hen, there's usually like, nice like encouragement and you know it's like very pretty and i i remember for uh for jinha's 
uh, celebration, uh, the girls came to me and they said, hey, um, we really want to throw this surprise uh, bridal shower for your for your fiance. Can you bring her to church on this day and just don't tell her what's going to happen and we're going to surprise her? And I thought, oh, that's really nice. Okay, yeah. And so I bring my fiance in and they say surprise and they're they're dressed wonderfully and they've they've uh, they've decorated all the tables and they come and they put the sash over her and it says the uh, the um, like the bride or something like that. It's beautiful. And just as they do that, I see a sack go over my head. <laughs> and so while they told me to surprise my fiancé, they were really backstabbing me, and there were a bunch of guys hiding in the back, and basically I got owned for the afternoon. And so it's kind of – can you imagine a week-long Bucks, Bucks week or a week-long hens, hens week? And so there's all this festivity and celebration. And what usually takes place is at the end of that week, the groom would then provide a garment, and he would – send it to his bride and he would say wear this and then come to where i am and so he would send a garment that he had prepared she would wear it and her and her bridesmaids would come to the the house and they would celebrate together for another week and then and then um the uh the bride and the groom they would go into the wedding chamber and then everybody would go home so uh in this passage uh, god is kind of communicating this covenant that takes place as a result of his justice. Now, one thing I want to highlight here is uh, this word salvation. And from this, I just want to point out two things about God's justice. The first is that the purpose of God's justice is redemption. The purpose of God's justice is redemption. Now, if you go to the first two verses of chapter 61, it says here, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the uh, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then it continues on. Now this verse Jesus quotes when he's in the synagogue, and as he quotes this, the room goes dead silent. And I want to read to you Jesus' version of the reading, because there's a slight word variation here. So as Jesus is in the, uh, in the synagogue, he quotes Isaiah chapter 61, and in Luke 4, 18-19, it reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, and this is Jesus reading, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So here, uh, what's added here is this idea of relieving uh, stress from the oppressed. And, uh, and this one line is kind of thrown in there to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And it's kind of, it comes from nowhere and the reader is kind of left, well, for the modern day reader, the, the individual is left wondering, well, what is that acceptable year the Lord talking about? And what scholars are basically saying is that this year uh, is referred to as the year of Jubilee. And for those of you um, who are not familiar with the year of Jubilee, if you go and you read Leviticus chapter 25, there's a section here that talks about this year that would come every 50 years. And what would take place is, in economy, the principles of economy, sometimes people are going to do well and they're going to build capital and others are not going to do well and they're going to go into debt. And what would 
inevitably happen is that some people who were not good with their finances would end up being very poor, they would be in poverty, and sometimes they would even go into slavery and they would be completely indebted to those that were uh, more well off. And so the idea of this year of Jubilee is that every 50 years, whenever there was somebody, um, it was like a year where everything would be equalized. And so I'll just read what I have here because that would probably be better. Um, so it was at these times that liberty from debt and slavery were uh, were proclaimed. If a person had gone into debt and lost land, it was this year that the land would be returned to the former owners. And so Jesus comes, and as he preaches this, he's saying, everybody, this is the year of Jubilee. Those that are in debt, those that are oppressed, I am here to relieve that oppression. And it is in the context of this statement that God says, I love justice. And so if you skim through the rest of the passage, he talks about consoling those who mourn. He talks about giving beauty for ashes. He talks about rebuilding and repairing Israel. And so this brings me to my next point of, um, of justice in the Bible. So the first point was the purpose of God's justice is redemption. And the second point about justice is that God's justice is not fair. It is undeserved and founded on mercy. And so there's a difference between the, the dictionary definition of justice and God's take on justice. And there's, there's a slight variation here. Now, if you think about how God reveals justice and how he gives mercy, um, and you don't have to go there right now, but if you have free time and you go back to Isaiah chapter 53, it talks about the nature in which God, Jesus comes and instills justice. And it would be easy for God to look at those that are oppressed and those that have gotten themselves into slavery and those that have gotten themselves into debt. And it's easy for God to come and say, listen, I have the solution for you. Number one, stop wasting your money. And two, invest your money in profitable things. And and I guess the spiritual application is, it's one thing to come to somebody who is, uh, enslaved to some terrible habit and to say, listen, stop sinning and keep the commandments. It's easy to offer the solution, but in Isaiah chapter 53, we're given this picture of Jesus coming and actually bearing the sins of the individual who is enslaved. And so um, as followers of Jesus, we are not just to give the right kind of advice to people, but it's actually to... Uh, be recipients of his grace and also to be givers of his grace in bearing one another's burdens. And so this example of Jesus is given in Isaiah chapter 53, and then we as followers of Christ are to actually practice the same things. Now, if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25, and Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 25, there's this parable that's given of the end times, and it's Matthew chapter 25, and we're just going to skim verses 31 to 46. In this parable, Jesus tells this story of how there are sheep and there are goats, and these two uh, groups are kind of split in the end times, the sheep being those that will enter into the kingdom, and the goats, those that are going to be turned away from the kingdom. And when he speaks to the sheep or the good people, he talks about how they have done good. And so um, if you look at verse um, 37, so 
Jesus has just talked to them about how they have relieved uh, the oppressed, they've clothed the naked, they have visited those that were in prison. In verse 37, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And God is communicating, you understand the work, my work of justice and redemption. And as you have done it to others, it is proof that you understand what I have done for you. There's a second group. These are the goats. And these are people who have basically done the opposite. And if you jump to verse 44... They come to Jesus or they come to the judge and they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And so there's this uh, statement here where God expresses, where Jesus expresses the importance of practicing this kind of justice. Now, I was flicking through YouTube one uh, one evening, and uh, I, I like talk shows. I don't know why, I just like talk shows. And I came across this uh, this video, and I want to share it with you guys. Uh, and this is basically a time where Bill Gates came on the Jimmy Fallon show, and uh, he makes this viral video. I want to get the word out for, for GatesLetter.com. Uh, how can we help to get people to go to that website? Well, I, it'd be great if we could create a, a viral video. A viral video. I mean, but it's, it's it's hard to to do stuff like that. I mean, like it's hard to make a viral video. Like what what would you have in mind? Oh, maybe something like this. Gatesletter.com. 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 What do you think? Uh, we don't have time for that. Okay. Sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, Bill Gates, check out GatesLetter.com. Okay, so there are a couple things I want to point out about that video. The first one is, did you notice he had a Seattle Seahawks jersey on? They won the Super Bowl this last year. I'm from Seattle, just, just so you guys know. So that's the first thing. The, the, the second thing that I want to mention is, it's a ridiculous video, and I wondered, how did this thing get over a million views? And at the same time, I wondered, what is on GatesLetter.com? <laughs> and so... I bet you're curious. I'm going to let you look it up later on. But I'll, I'll share with you a couple statistics that I found from the website. So um, basically, Bill and Melinda Gates have started this foundation where they put tons of funding into, into foreign aid, and they're trying to do massive projects like get rid of polio in India. Uh, they're trying to um, eliminate all kinds of um, – uh, they're trying to provo- uh, provide vaccines that eliminate – what's the word I'm looking for? They're just trying to help people that are sick. So if it's avoidable, he's trying to make it happen. <laughs> All right. So there are a couple things on um, 
on this website that I found really interesting. Now, he says there are three myths that people believe that stop the help of the oppressed or that stop foreign aid. And I'm just going to tackle two of them because I think they're a bit more relevant to our context. The first uh, myth is that poor countries are doomed to stay poor. Um, in other words, if if there's a people group that's in a really bad place, they're just nothing is going to change that, and so it's not worth it to pump funding into that. The second one is foreign aid is a big waste, whether or not it's from corruption or whether it's um, another reason, which I'll go into in just a little bit. So I'm going to address the first one. Poor countries are doomed to stay poor. Now, um, Bill Gates did this uh, survey where he went and researched uh, the the economic status of specific countries in 1960 and kind of tracked it until present day. And so here's what he finds. In 1960, almost all of the global economy was in the West. Per capita, income in the United States was about $15,000 a year. That's income per person, so $60,000 a year for a family of four. Across Asia, Africa, Latin America, uh, Latin America, incomes per person were far lower. Brazil, around 1900, China, almost 1000, but Botswana, almost 400, and so on. Now, if you look at where these countries are today, it's quite different. So per person, incomes in Turkey and Chile, um, are where the United States, are where the United States level was in 1960. Malaysia is nearly there, as is Gabon. And that no man's land between rich and poor countries has been filled in by China, India, Brazil, and others. And so um, if you go on the website, he kind of splits up uh, three different major uh, economic groups, first world, third world, and then the Soviet Union and everything around there. And so what he's saying is there are major gaps in between second world and third world and second world and first world. And what he's saying is time goes by. Those gaps are being filled by other countries. So uh, since 1960... China's real income per person uh, has gone up eightfold. India's has quadrupled. Brazil has almost quintupled. And the same country of Botswana, with shrewd management of its minerals and resources, has seen a 30-fold increase. There's a class of nations in the middle that barely existed 50 years ago, and it includes more than half of the world's population. And so, uh, actually, do I have that slide up there? Yeah, so more than a billion people have risen out of poverty since the 1960s. And so that myth of uh, basically, um, yeah, that first myth of poor countries are doomed to, to stay poor, kind of the best response against that is basically to show that um, the poor countries are not doomed to stay poor and it's the fact that they haven't stayed poor. And so there is this hope of actually bettering society um, by helping by helping them out. So here's the second the second myth. Uh, foreign aid is a big waste. And within that myth is this idea of corruption taking place. And uh, if you give people aid, it will build this kind of dependence. And if you help them once, then they're going to need more. It's kind of you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. And there's this fear of this never-ending problem that's going to take place. And so um, basically with the idea of corruption, I thought it was kind of interesting how um, Bill Gates handled this, and he's just saying uh, the idea that because there's corruption, cutting funding due to corruption doesn't solve the problem. And I kind of went through the news, and I found this interesting story. I don't know if you guys had gone through the news back in March, and basically uh, there was this issue with uh, Sydney Water. Um, and basically, uh, let me just give the right names so it builds some form of credibility. Um, 
basically the Australian Water Holdings, Sydney Water, and some politicians uh, had this major corruption scheme going on. There was like millions of dollars being passed around, and um, it was on the news and it was on like talk show radio and different things. And so it's this idea of, hold on, there's corruption there, so we should cut funding, and then if we stop that, then the problem will go away. So it's kind of like there's corruption in Sydney. It has to do with water. Let's cut the water supply off. Like, is that really going to fix the problem? And so Bill Gates is saying certainly there is a problem with corruption. It's a very small percentage of funding that uh, it's – yeah, it's a very small percentage of funding that goes to into the pockets of corrupted politicians or leaders. And so he's just saying – but there's lots of good that's still being done. So if you stop funding because there's corruption, it doesn't actually fix the problem. So here's the second issue of aid dependence. Um, it's this idea – well, I guess I've already explained it. Um, and in um, – with aid dependence, there is this idea that it's a never-ending hole and people are going to use that aid as a crutch. And what happens is in these studies, people overlook the countries that have graduated from aid dependence, um, and then they kind of focus on the most problematic areas and say, see this country, there are lots of problems, we've pumped funding in here, and nothing has changed. This is a problem. And so there's a few statistics where uh, he kind of shows how aid dependence has benefited. So, um, for example, here's a four here. A vaccination campaign in southern Africa virtually eliminated measles as a killer of children. Second example, an inter international effort eradicated smallpox worldwide. Third example, a program to control tuberculosis in China cut the number of cases by 40% between 1990 and 2000. And finally, a regional program to eliminate polio in Latin, Latin America after 1985 has eliminated it as a public health threat in the Americas. <laughs> so there's this idea that um, aid, for, giving foreign aid is going to be a problem. But what we're finding is that as you give aid, it actually helps people come out of the oppression that they're in. Now, as I read through this, I kind of think back to my own life experience and I uh, be perfectly honest with you guys, I've been a recipient of massive amounts of aid. And uh, I don't know if I've shared it before, but I came from a pretty low socioeconomic background. And me, my family, we were basically broke growing up. And there was this point in time in my life where I wanted to take the next step in life. I wanted to go do something with my life. And I didn't have any money to do it. And that first step was I wanted to go to this short-term mission school and learn how to do Bible work. I didn't even know what that meant, but I just wanted to go because someone told me it was good. So I was like, okay, I want to go. And what ended up happening is that people started sharing with other people around the church, hey, Roy wants to go to this mission school and learn how to give Bible studies, and he, you know, let's let's really support him in this. And what ended up happening is one auntie talked to another auntie and talked to another auntie who talked to another uncle, and basically the whole the whole church comes together and they take this offering. And I don't even know that they've taken offering. And then one one uh, Sabbath, I walk into church and this group of people come and uh, they give my dad this envelope. And I went home from church not knowing what happened. And my dad comes and he passes me this envelope and he says, Roy, uh, the church wants to just support you in your next stage of life. And they're just saying, you know, like, good luck and God bless you with what you're trying to do. And I open the envelope and there is like a wad of cash. And it's not like $500, which is a lot of money for somebody who's 19 and 
broke <laughs> and in debt. <laughs> and it's like in every sense of how an individual could mess up, like I had made those mistakes. It's not like I was a, a, a deserved recipient of, of these funds. And, you know, there's some people who uh, make scholarship applications and they're like the top of the top. And people say, oh, yeah, this person deserves money. That wasn't me. <laughs> it was like I don't deserve the money and I just in a lot of mess. And so I opened this envelope up, and there's like thousands, I mean thousands of dollars in this. And that happened more than once because I went on mission, I came back, and I was like, oh, I want to go on mission again. And then the church was like, oh, let's, let's support Roy in this. And then they would pile money together, and they would send me. And what, what happened was there were moments where I didn't always use those funds wisely, to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah, it completely helped me, and I wasted a portion of that money. Yeah, I used some of it well, but I used some of it not so well. And as time went by, basically there was this constant, um, like God provided. Uh, there was a point in time where you guys are familiar with the GFC. And, uh, I'm about to go into uni and I have, I have no money. And I, I had, an, I had, uh, I think I had like a thousand dollars like in my bank account. And the previous year I had saved up and I bought a mountain bike. And so I had a mountain bike and I had a thousand dollars. And that was like, that was everything that I owned. And it's kind of like, how do I take this next step in life? Like the economy is terrible. I can't rely on my parents. I want to, I want to go to school, but I don't know that I can. And lo and behold, this church comes and says, Roy, listen, we just want to support you in your life and we want to help you progress. And so we think you should go to uni. How do you feel about if we sponsor your education and then you go get your education and then you can come back? And without that aid, I wouldn't be a pastor. Without that aid, I wouldn't have met Jinha. Without that aid, I wouldn't have Micah. And it's got, I just wouldn't have been here. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. Like, And I, I guess I've been saying this over and over again, but I really didn't deserve that and I, there were times where I goofed up and yet I am at this place of stability right now where I'm no longer dependent but I'm in a position where I can now give as opposed to take and I am just standing before you saying that aid works and um, helping the oppressed works and so um, yeah as we go into discussion time it's my uh it's my prayer that as we discuss and as we talk about how to relieve and uh, relieve the um, the pressures of the oppressed, that we could really make a difference in our church to not just our surrounding community, but even even beyond the uh, beyond the city of Melbourne. Um, there's one last aspect of of um, social justice that I want to talk about in the Bible, and this is slightly related, but I just thought it's important to talk about this. Um, through the discussion of social justice, there's a lot of argument over how to implement this in terms of policy. And in the Bible, I can only think of one example where this idea of uh, relieving the, or just taking care of the needs of the people comes to my mind. And it's in Acts chapter 2, and I'll just narrate it for you as we're closing. So uh, there's a story in the Bible where there's this massive revival of people, and they come to the knowledge of God, and they basically gather themselves together, and they begin selling all of their goods off. They begin selling all their goods, and they recognize there are people in their community that have needs. So as they sell their goods, they take the money, and they relieve um, the pressures from those people that are in their community. And that happens across the board. And as you read the account in Acts chapter 2, it just says that everybody does it. And so now there's almost this pressure. If you own 
property or if you own anything, you've got to get rid of it and then relieve the relieve the pressure of those that are in need. And if you go to Acts um, chapter 5, there's a story of this couple. Um, and this couple, their name is Ananias and Sapphira. And they sold, they sell their possessions. And what they do is they go to the leaders in the church and they say, um, we have sold our property. We want to give this to you. Now, you know, use your money as, use this money as, as your own. But in the story, they keep back a portion of it. And they decide, um, yeah, we, we're going to tell them we sold our property. You have this money. And at the same time, let's just keep a portion of it because, you know, we have our own needs. And what ends up happening is, uh, both couple, uh, both individuals end up dying because they, they lied about what they did. And what I find interesting is, um, the response of the church leaders at that time. And it says here in verse three, and Peter is talking to the husband at this point in time. And Peter is one of the leaders of the church. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back a part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And so there's this idea of, look, in the system of the church, what you have, it's yours. And yeah, we are stewards of, of uh, the things that God has given to us. And at the same time, we have the freedom to choose whether or not we want to give or whether or not we don't want to give. And I like this principle of it's not enforced. It's something that you get to decide to do. And so as we discuss um, what that looks like practically, um, yeah, I hope it's not a time where you feel pressured like, oh, no. Like, I need to start reaching into my pockets and, you know, give it to the first person that I think needs this. But it's just to think through thoughtfully, prayerfully, and ask God, God, what would you like me to do with my time and the resources that you've given to me? It is completely your choice to exercise and experience the freedom to give and to offer liberty. And so with that, um, yeah, I'll just invite you guys to join us in discussion.